Good morning. Let me just say, I hope Pastor Dave's children message didn't give you guys any ideas about sleeping during this message. Uh, our text today is Revelation 2, 12 through 17, and 3 through chapter 6. And I don't have the page numbers before me. I think they were like 1,219. This is God's word to us this morning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the church, or and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 
Today we are starting on churches three and five of the seven letters or the seven sermon series to the churches. And before we jump into today's text, I'd like to summarize the churches we've gone over already. We did Ephesus and Laodicea, two churches which were on the outside of this chiasm and at risk of falling away, a church straying from being built on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and a church straying from the love of Jesus Christ, and both called to repent and turn back to the gospel and the Savior who has both these things in perfection. And then last week, we did churches two and six, moving inward towards the center. And these churches weren't erring. In fact, they had no sins to address. But they were reminded to keep their focus on heaven and to choose not instead of heaven over hell, but heaven over earth, even unto death. And now this week, as we move closer and closer to the center, we find Pergamum and Sardis, two unique churches which still have some parallels in this theme, this chiastic structure. And so what, what does this theme of Pergamum and Sardis have for us this morning? What does the scripture have for us? Well, I think the takeaway from these two texts is that our faith is one of, of action and diligence in the framework and the context of a war. Paul writes, uh, we, we forget this, but Paul writes, and the New Testament is full of this framework, this gloom and shadow that Christians live in the midst of a battle. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells his disciple, take heed unto yourself, keep watch over yourself and the teaching, for by those things, you will save both yourself and your listeners. And today, we come to the text of two churches, and their themes have something of warfare. For Sardis, it's far more practical, but for Pergamum, it's there too. And their warfare shows that they are risk at risk in two ways. For Pergamum, it is through compromise, by letting the enemy in. And for Sardis, it's by complacency. The truth is, we as Christians can get lazy. We can think that we live in a pacifist world, and we can take a pacifist response to sin, to sinful teachings, to sin in our church, and to sin in our lives. And today's text, and the text next week, which is super cool, is going to push against that. As Thyatira next week has this powerful line where Jesus says, I am the one who seeks and searches both mind and heart. The Christian faith is set in the context of war. And if you guys, you, you take notes, here's one sentence I'd love for you to write down. We have been reconciled. We are at peace with God. But we are at war with sin. We are not pacifists in that battle. 
We are not third-party bystanders. And the text today shows us that. So I'm going to leave that thought aside, and now let's explore. For the city of Sardis, we actually can kind of see this. There's an irony in the text as it says, keep watch or wake up. See, Sardis historically, before this letter of Revelation, right, about 200 years before, had this reputation of being an unconquerable fortress. And I have been there. And although there's not much but rubble left, you can see it still. Sardis is this mountain with sharp cliffs. And there's still part of a wall that, that remains. And you can totally see it. It's, it's sort of like um, a fortress in like those Lord of the Rings movies, right? And so Sardis had this reputation of being unconquerable. And yet, ironically, twice it had been conquered. And both times in the same way. I'm going to tell you how one of them is recounted. The uh, two kings were at war, and the, Sardis, the king of Sardis retreated back. And he didn't expect the other king to follow, but he did. And so he is besieged in his castle. And what happens is, He doesn't worry about it. And as the story goes, the besieging enemy looked up and they saw at one point on the wall where it was very sharp and very steep, the birds would sit on the wall. And so the enemy's strategist thought the very point where they think they're the strongest, they're the weakest because no guards are there. And as the story goes, a few men climb up climb in, and then they go, and they open the main gate, and the city is captured. And how the city is captured is twice done by that same way. And so what we see with the city of Sardis is a lack of diligence. The city which has this reputation of being a buttress and unbreakable, much like the Christian faith, our doctrine which is a buttress and a fortress for the truth, if not diligently kept and watched, can actually be our undoing. It's notable that Satan uses Scripture in response to Christ. He quotes it. But I want to focus far more on Pergamum, because I think Pergamum is the city which far more is applicable to us today. Because the history of Pergamum is actually a Jewish one, which Jesus intentionally brings in. See, Pergamum didn't have a history of war, but Jesus references Balaam and Balak. And I'm curious, how many of you guys, I'm going to make you participate. Wake up. How many of you know who Balaam is? Hands raised. Okay. Some. This would have been really close to home for the Jewish listeners. See, Balaam in the Old Testament was a prophet. And he was this seer for God. And he was one who was supposed to speak for God. And as the Israelites are coming close to the the promised land, the king of Moab goes to Balaam, God's prophet, and he tries to pay him to curse the Israelites. That's the story which referencing would have been brought to mind. 
and Balaam, we get this six-chapter six narrative where Balaam, time after time, he wants to do it because he wants to get paid. And each time, God calls him to bless the Israelites. And over these chapters, we see the heart of Balaam as he only superficially represents God and yet at the same time doesn't really love or fear him. And after three times of Balak taking Balaam and saying, will you curse the Israelites from this spot? Will you curse from this spot? And every time he blesses, the narrative kind of ends with Balaam and Balak. But what we see is the narrative change. And this is actually what the text says. As Balak had tried to turn God against his people, and he had failed, the narrative says the people turn against their God. The text says the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Daughters of Moab invited the people to to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel starts to live and to coexist with those who are not God's people. They start to conform, and they conform by joining. And what's crazy, if you follow this narrative, is it gets more and more public. The sins which start out as somewhat distant grow to the point where verse 6 in Numbers 25 says, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and he left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went to the man of Israel into the chamber and he pierced them both, the man of Israel and the woman. That is an uncomfortable text and I read it because that is what Jesus is calling the church of Pergamum to reflect on and think. And what's crazy about that text is if you follow the narrative, this is what Jesus says to Phineas. He says, therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. Because he was jealous for his God. And then this is a huge word. And made atonement for the people of Israel. So to the church which is erring and and joining in and taking the false teachings of the world and straying and and compromising, worshiping idols. And in the Greek world, that would be pretty easy. Jesus points out this text. And two two enormous things is to see that Phineas is given a covenant of peace because of his actions for the righteousness of God. And that he makes atonement for the people of Israel in that text. Atonement is a strong word in the Hebrew language. And that text should make us uncomfortable. And later on we see that um, Numbers 31 says it was on Balaam's advice that all of this happens. 
Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. That's a direct quote. And he is later killed with the kings of Midian. He is killed with them, with the sword, when God calls the people to purify the land. So my question is, am I calling you guys to go kill sinners and sinful teachers? No. But I was curious. I wonder how long of a silence is too long. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. But what's, what's amazing about this text and what's calling for is that Christians, we as Christians, no longer have to deal with death. You know, 2,000 years ago, maybe, the case of Phineas, um, Psalm 106, which was our call to worship today, it actually says that his action was counted to him as righteousness. And yet Christians today are done dealing with death because all of death for us was finished at the cross. Every sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. So we no longer have to deal in death. And yet, we are still at war. Still battling sin. And I think the, the, the scripture of Pergamum, the text of Pergamum, shows us a change on how Christians battle this sin. It's no error that Jesus says that I will come and battle against them, that I will come and war against them, the sword of my mouth. The battle of sin belongs to the war, or belongs to the Lord, and yet the weapon he uses is ours. See, Revelation is this um, apocalyptic literature, and so we get all these illustrations, and we've touched on this a couple times, but the sword of his mouth. What do we think that is? Do you think it's a literal sword? It should call to mind images which are all just abounding in Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That is exciting because the word of God is ours today. And it is the weapon by which we can fight sin. And what's remarkable about this weapon is in our battle against sin, there is nothing stronger and also more precise. More, no blade more precise than, than the word of God. The sword of truth. I can think of an example, and, and this is an example of how well it can work in the church. I remember when COVID first hit, and I remember having, uh, I was serving in a church, and we had an elder board, and on that elder board was a Dutch guy, an old Dutch guy, and I love this brother, and I love Dutch people for all their strengths and all their faults. And this, this Dutch man, if he had an opinion, you were going to know about it, and he was always passionate about it. And I remember for this meeting, he sent an email before the meeting, and he was just way out of line. And so going to that meeting, as we as a church were figuring out what to do, he was, he was, there was sin 
definitely present. And so I prepared. I had scripture. I was ready for the fight. I was going to call him out with the word of God. And this is how I can recount it happened. The meeting started. This elder went way past what he should have in saying what he was, how we should as a church react. He had more of his opinion than the word of God. And I, and I, I rebuked him with the word of God, but here's how I would describe it. It's like a two-handed sword, and I went expecting to face an enemy, and so I grabbed that sword and I swung it, thinking he was an enemy. And the thing about the word of God to Christians is it did nothing more than knock the chip off his shoulder, knock the sin off his life, off of his... And what's surprising is I wasn't prepared. I looked foolish because I went there expecting to fight. But this brother, who is my brother in the Holy Spirit, who I am not at war with, but because of God am at peace with, so quickly went back. And I ended up looking like the person who was more out of line. What I'm trying to point out is what's amazing about God's word when we speak it to each other's lives, when we know it well enough to rebuke the the Balaam's and the false teachings, it can't harm the Christian nor his brother or sister. It can only correct and win back. And for the church in Pergamum, they needed to hear Jesus' word to them. They needed to have their sins and their selfishness put in check. I've been on the receiving end of it too, and not to my harm, but to actually my development and my growth as a Christian. See, I worked four years in the construction industry. Not in the actual building, but in the development. But still construction. And in construction, you, you're prone to habits and to, to language and to jokes, which Christians have to put to death. And so for me, I remember being with a brother and making a, a, a joke which I shouldn't have made, a coarse joke. And this Japanese brother, he called me out on it. And it was, for the last two years, it has been super reforming. And this is how he called it out. The, the words actually struck deep into my heart. He said, you know, how can you make a joke like that, man? Because it was a sin, it was a joke that had to do with sin, and it was very careless towards it. And he was like, you, you realize every sin is another bruise, is another beating, is another burden and weight that you put on the very God you love. I mean, they're all paid for. They're all paid for on the cross. The past, the present, and the future. And yet, if we're not fighting sin, if we're not active and diligent in our faith right now, are we not doing that to Christ? Are we not, by our own choice, putting more and more wounds for him to carry? It is super fitting this morning that we had professions of faith 
because they model what the church in Pergamum and Sardis needed to hear. First, the very gospel, which we are all unified on and fighting for and fighting with, how we are putting to death sin, and also the covenant by which we do this. It's brothers and sisters speaking, correcting our sins. Patrick loves his church discipline, and that's because we all, to some extent, need it. And we can do that when we speak the very sword of God's mouth, his word to each other. That we would, oh, that we would constantly cut away the leaven of sin in our lives, both personally and communally, by simply speaking the sword, which is God's word, and and cutting it out while it's small and short. That's the message I'd like to leave with us this morning, is are we doing that? Are we currently diligent and awake and aware? Because if we're not, then we won't recognize when false teachings work their way in. We won't recognize when false practices work their way into our lives. And we won't notice it when they work their way into our brothers' and sisters' lives as as well. Practically speaking, this this is what we need to be awake and alert to. I couldn't help but think of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane as they fell asleep too. How they could have kept each other awake, right? Kind of like when we're driving so that the walls wouldn't be unguarded. There is a war to be had against sin and it's something that each of us who is called in Christ is called to do. And because of the God we have and the gospel we have received, we are equipped with the word and the strength and the garments to to fight for righteousness. The church in Pergamum is offered manna to sustain them. And the watchful Sardis, or the unwatchful Sardis, is offered the clothes of righteousness so that they might be prepared. The God who calls us to diligence and to action, he modeled it in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, he lived it. And he has given us all the armor, all the truth in his word, and the body of believers, which we just added to this morning, so that we can not only have it attained in the day to come, but to live into it today through his spirit, through Jesus Christ. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father and gracious God, Lord, we bring before you the weight and the judgment of all our sins. Lord, we confess to you the sins of our past and the sins which still cling to us and to tempt 
and tempt our hearts to, to go astray. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, every sin of ours has been atoned by Jesus' blood on the cross. Lord, that we have been made at peace and made righteous in your sight. And Lord, we rejoice in this accomplished work. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would convict and encourage and inspire us this morning to fight the good fight, to put to death the sins which still linger and cling. Father, give us discernment and alertness and the strength that no evil may draw us from your worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.